And I think when we come to talking about what a healthy church is, our minds, because we're kind of products of our time, of the modern and now the postmodern age, our minds immediately go to numbers, measurables. We want to think that a healthy church is something that somehow we can quantify. And you'll hear all kinds of different numbers that are thrown out. You'll hear like, oh, uh, it's uh, number of baptisms or, um, you know, the number of members in your church. And uh, there it could be the number of programs that you run or how many worship services you have and things like that. There's so many different measurables people look at. Some people are just looking at the bottom line, like how much, you know, how much money, how much financial resources does the church have? And these are the measurables. It's hard because we don't really find this in, in Scripture. In fact, we, we look at the early church and, and, and even in the first, the first church in, in, in Acts and we look and it explodes. It grows so fast. And in those early, early days, early months, it's like, oh, they got it all together. That's ideal. We should do that. But even that church, which is growing not by... 10, 15, 20 people, but by thousands. That church was not a healthy church. It had serious problems within it that were going to be revealed just a couple of chapters later. I'm not telling you it was a bad church, but it wasn't healthy. Because with all of this growth taking place, there were still people in the church who were carrying over the, the, the old ways. They were still holding on to the old divisions. They were saying, oh, we should treat the, 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 the Hebraist widows better than we treat the Hellenized widows. You go, what's the difference? Well, they were all Jewish, right? Yeah, they were Jewish, but the Hebraist Jewish widows were had, had kind of remained true to the Jewish faith and Jewish customs. The Hellenized had become much more like the Gentiles or just like the Romans and the Greeks. And so even then there's problems. Can it just look at numbers? But that's the temptation we always have. It's a temptation to somehow quantify I grew up in the day and age, and maybe you did too, and you, if you did, you probably took one of these tests. And it was an attempt to figure out what your spiritual gifts were. Anybody ever do that? Do a little test, answer all these questions? It was an attempt to try to like take what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit giving us gifts and figuring out what they were. It's what we do. We think that, that everything can be measured. Well, Keo read the scripture from Galatians that Paul had written earlier, and he, and he read about the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know how we can look at that and see the fruit of the Spirit and say, how can we measure that? How can we measure love? How can we measure joy? How can we measure peace, faithfulness? How do we measure these things? I don't know. I really don't know. And so if we're caught up in a world that believes the most important things 
are those that can be measured, one of the first things we need to understand is that the world is wrong. Just like the NFL is so wrong that they think they can measure all these things and figure out who the best quarterbacks are, there are actually a lot of immeasurable things that help us know. And those things don't come out until later on as, as they're actually practicing or they're in games and, and in, in important situations. Then we go, oh, there, that's it, now I know. But we actually have to see them play. So we want measurables. And we want to try to measure the things that really cannot be measured. You see, even when I'm thinking about what should we be doing, what can we measure, is there any standard, and we've kind of talked about this already as we've gone through what a healthy church is, but let me use something that I do, something that I do every Sunday instead of something that you might do. And what I do every Sunday is I preach. I bring a sermon to you. And while I like hearing compliments, I'm not going to tell you I don't, I like hearing compliments. There's only one, there's only one comment that is, is the one that matters the most to me. See, it's not that, oh, pastor, that was very interesting. That's great. If you think it's interesting, I want it to be interesting. I don't want it to be just kind of dull and boring. If you say that was thought-provoking, great. That's one of my goals. One of my goals whenever I speak is to try to get your brains to work and to, to provoke thinking. But that's not it either. If you said, that was powerful, that was powerful. That was moved, that was emotional, that was, that was well said, well spoken. Again, all great things, and I would you know, not ever say I don't ever want to hear those things, I do. But here's the one. Here's the one that I think is what should always be my goal. My goal shouldn't be to be all these other things. I should do all those other things to serve this goal. And the goal is this, that you, you could come to me and you could say, Pastor, you know, you preach this sermon. And as I thought about this sermon and as I prayed about it and as, and as God's Spirit got a hold of me, it helped me become more like Jesus. It helped me become more like Jesus. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that why we're here? Aren't we here to hear God's word in such a way that God's word, our understanding, meets God's spirit who's already in our lives and transforms us to becoming more like Jesus? That's my goal. That's my goal every time I open the word of God to study it for myself. That's what I told you discipleship is. The goal of discipleship is not to get people through a program and to check off, oh, look, we got 20 disciples. It's not to say, oh, we have, we have 15 discipleship books and you need to work your way through those 15. No, it's not about passing a test. It's not about our church going on to jeopardy and then all the categories are about discipleship and we win, okay? It's not about trivia. It's not about knowledge, Is the knowledge meeting God's Spirit in our lives and helping us become 
more like Jesus. That's it. It's not super complicated. I didn't make this up. Don't think like, oh, pastor, that's genius. It's not. This is what Jesus said when he's about to ascend into heaven. He said, go ye therefore and make disciples. And he didn't just say, teach them a bunch of stuff. He says, teach them to observe all things. Observe doesn't mean look at. It means to keep, to do everything that I've told you that you should do. Do that. It's knowledge that changes our lives because it meets God's spirit in our lives. I don't know how to measure that. I really don't. But I know this. It's a question you can ask yourself. It's a question that you can ask yourself every day. Am I more like Jesus today than I was yesterday? Am I more like Jesus after studying God's word, after being at a Bible study, Sunday school, after being in a church service? Am I more like Jesus now because of what I experienced, or am I the same old person I was beforehand? That's it. If we're just here to acquire knowledge, well, there's a lot of ways to get knowledge. This is, in fact, the least effective way to get knowledge. They say this type of presentation, a lecture, you will only recall about 10% of it. And that's provided you're not taking notes or doing something else or go back and listen to it. It's not just about acquiring knowledge. It's about God's word meeting God's spirit in our lives and changing us to become more like Jesus. We're a disciple of Christ in two senses. One, it's Christ who's teaching us ultimately. And the second thing is, we're becoming more like Christ. And so we come back to this, this Romans 12 and, and looking through this whole chapter at what a healthy church is. And again, if you need a reminder, you know, turn over to the back of the notes that are in there and you can see the list of the characteristics of a healthy church. And we're at this, this point of a fruitful church. And when you first read this text, you might go, this doesn't sound like a fruitful church. It doesn't sound like that's what's being described. But it is. Let's look. It says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. A fruitful church. A fruitful church is, again, it's, it's hard to quantify because it's something that's happening to us. We're being changed. We're, we're, we're somehow the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in our lives. But as, as James reminds us, that faith without works is dead. It's worthless. And so it's not enough to say, yep, I got all the fruit of the Spirit. Check off the list. Got them all. As a matter of fact, I've been tending the fruit of the Spirit orchard. It's growing. It's getting bigger. No. 
It's not really it. Fruit of the Spirit, it has to go somewhere. It has to do something. And what Paul is describing here is, this is what a fruitful church looks like. This is what a fruitful church looks like. This is what happens when when the fruit of the Spirit is just growing so much that the harvest in the church is so great. This is what will happen. This is what a healthy church is. A healthy church serves the Lord now. Now. Not, Not someday, not tomorrow, not next week, but now. We serve the Lord in this moment. And we serve the Lord in the next moment. It doesn't mean that we don't look ahead. It doesn't mean that we don't plan. But we don't get so caught up in looking ahead and planning that, that, that we don't do anything now. When I, worked on my, when I worked on my PhD, when I first started to work on my PhD, before we went to Scotland, you know, I thought like, okay, this is... This is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Scotland, and in the PhD system in, in, in the UK, you don't have to take classes. You just start working on your dissertation. And I just thought, I'll start working on my dissertation. I will um, just crank that thing out in two or three years. We'll be back in Hawaii. That was the plan. But something happened. Something happened that complicated that, and that is life. Life kept happening. And I realized that my plan would only work if I was willing to do something. And what I had to be willing to do was basically put at great risk my marriage and put at great risk my relationship with my children. I had to pretty much say, look, uh, yeah, I can do this, but in three years, I will have a PhD but I will have a family who doesn't know me. And what helped me not make that decision is I had seen so many other people do that. At the seminary that I was at before, every year, at least one divorce. Every year, you would see children basically being raised without fathers and or mothers. I saw it all the time. I heard the stories of so many pastors who weren't doing this to pursue a PhD, but they were doing it to, to build their church. And they, they said, we're going to build the church, we're going to build the church, we're going to build the church. And meanwhile, I'm not going to deal with my family. They're good. They're happy. They're clean. I'm providing for them. I said, no. I had to figure out that I couldn't just say, hey, someday I'll be Dr. Sanders, your husband and your father. Wait for someday. Because my kids kept doing this annoying thing. You know what the annoying thing they kept doing? They kept growing. They kept aging. They kept going through different stages of life. They wouldn't just stay the same for three years so I could get this done, and then we could resume our lives. No. I had to be their father at that moment. I couldn't just be looking ahead. 
And I made a decision that was really a decision more about pride and letting the pride go. Not being able to say, look, I finished my PhD in two years or three years. Instead, I said, God, however long it takes, let it take that long. But when I get my PhD, I want a wife who loves me and kids who know me. That was the goal. We don't just look to the future and forget about right now, the needs right now. It's been the greatest challenge since coming here. Since coming here three years ago, I have known from day one everything that we need to do to help, help this church move forward. But I made a decision three years ago. And it really wasn't a decision that, that I made so much as it's what I believe the Bible teaches us. That as the pastor of the church, I am the shepherd of the church. And the job of the shepherd is, is not to traumatize the flock so much that the, that the flock scatters. It's to meet the needs of the flock at that moment. To walk with them through life at that moment while at the same time looking to the future. It's a decision I made. And I've told some people about this before. But it's a decision I made. And in my heart, I said, God, I will take as long as needs to happen. Oh, I, I know the temptations. Believe me, I know the temptations to come in and to either just totally just clean house or so radically change things. Get over that hump and then let's move forward. I know the temptations. I know the temptations to do the, to do the things and preach the way and, and do the programs that just get numbers and people to come. I know all those temptations. But I can't see in Scripture where I can say I can either just totally traumatize the church that God has entrusted me with nor can I just leave them where they are. I have to somehow figure out how to do both. And I'm going to tell you, it's not easy. You guys all remember when I came three years ago, I had a full head of hair. No, I didn't. I'm lying. It's always, always looked like this. But I'm going to tell you, it's not easy. It's easier to choose one or the other. There are some times in seminary that professors who are teaching on church growth and things like that, they will actually tell pastors, don't come to a church that seems to have plateaued. Don't go to a church that is struggling, that has had conflict in the recent past. They said it's better for you just to go start a brand new church right next door. It's better. Well, we have to find a way. We have to find a way, not just me, and I know many of you are already doing this. How do we meet the needs of the church right now while looking to the future? How do we do it? That's the goal. 
a healthy church serves the Lord now. We all are right now involved in serving the Lord, in doing ministry. One of the things I tell my kids a lot is I would tell them, you know, you can't keep borrowing from tomorrow. You can't keep borrowing from tomorrow because someday tomorrow is going to show up and expect to be paid. And yet we all do it, right? Whether it's procrastination or whether it's cramming too much in today and not taking care of the things I need to do tomorrow. I'm just going to keep borrowing from tomorrow, borrowing from tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to come. We need to take care of the things that are here today and be ready for the things that are tomorrow. It's more, though, than just serving. You look at those words he uses. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. It's a commitment to service. It's not just serving because it's the thing to do. It's a passion to serve. It's to do all we can with all that we are. It's, just, it's being a living sacrifice. It's giving our best as an offering to God. And some of you might, who maybe were athletic in the past might have the same frustration I have, which is I finally got mature enough to learn how to train well when I was old and my body would break down too easily. And I was always like, I wish this guy could go back into that 17, 18, 19-year-old because that would be a pretty good athlete. But it's frustrating. Frustrated because I want to do more than my body will allow me to do. You know that you have a commitment to service. You know you have a passion to serve when, when, when you want to do more than you know you can. Whether it's age, whether it's time, whether it's resources, whether it's abilities, something that's limiting you from, from doing more, but, but you want to do more. That's the fervency. That's the zeal. In fact, it gives rest whole new meaning. The, our cross-country season's about done, and, and a lot of my runners are going to be going to be starting into track and some of them who are more like they want to get better they're like okay so what can I do what can I do and what I tell them is as soon as the cross country season is done this is the first thing you need to do you need to rest to rest you need to take a break for about a week to 10 days you need to rest you need to let your body recover before you start training again there is a place in service. There is a place when we have this zeal and we have this fervency that we also have to be reminded that there has to be times of rest. But we rest with a purpose. We rest so that we can then go back and serve. The second thing we see in this scripture, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, and what the text is telling us here is that a healthy church, a fruitful church, is full of hope. Full of hope that God is winning even when it might seem like the church is losing. 
Even when it seems like things might not be working, we, we have hope that God is winning. Do we, it's easy to lose hope if we're not fruitful. If we don't have that, the, the fruit of the Spirit, that, that love that comes from God. And we were talking about this in Sunday school today because we were looking at an earlier part of Romans, Romans chapter 5, when it talks about how hope comes about. That if you trace back hope, it goes to suffering. And we made the connection because why does he say this? He says, because the Spirit will pour out his love on you. So why suffering? Why sometimes do we have to go through low times or hard times or plateaued times? Why do we have to do that? And the reason is this. It's because it's in suffering that love is revealed. You don't know if you have God's love in your life. You don't know if you have that most important fruit of the Spirit unless it is tested. And the highest test for God's love is can you love your enemies? And can you love your enemies while they're making you suffer? Can you? Because if you can, you will have hope. You will have hope because you know that there is something inside of you that wasn't there before that you cannot naturally produce. You will have hope that God is doing in you in a small way what he wants to do in the world, what he wants to do through the church. I mean, the other reason we have hope is we trust God. And even though we don't always know God's plans, we trust God. And here's the thing that we don't like to hear. Sometimes, not going to say always, but sometimes losing is part of God's plan. What? I thought God was the God of winners. I thought every time a Christian football team prays, God will let them win the championship. That's how it happens in the movies. Isn't that how it happens in life? Is it? Is that what happened to Jesus? Jesus, in the world's eyes, left this earth as a failure, as a criminal. But it was part of God's plan. Some of you have heard the story of the of the Elliots, the missionaries, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And, and you heard this story, it happened in, I think, in the 50s, 1950s, and, and how these missionaries were going down to this tribe that hadn't been reached with the gospel. And they were considered one of the most violent tribes. Murder was kind of part of their culture, way of life, you know, revenge killing after revenge killing. And these missionaries went down there, and the, the men made contact with these Alka Indians. And they, they were able to exchange some gifts from a plane. They, they touched down a couple times. And then one time, they don't come back from their trip. 
they find them all slaughtered. Pretty tragic story if it ends there. But it doesn't end there. Jim Elliott's wife, a few months later, through some really miraculous kind of connections, is able to go back to this same tribe. And over time, through her ministry and others who went with her, they were able to bring the gospel to that tribe. And that, that tribe, many of them became Christians because of it. But let me ask you this question. What if God today pressed upon our hearts the need to go reach a people group? And he chose you to be part of the team. But you got a special pipeline to God. And God said this to you. He said this. Look, if we're going to reach those people, you're going to have to die. You don't get to, you don't get to experience and enjoy the victory. Not on this earth. But you're going to die. Would you say, sign me up, God? I'm good, let's go. Or would you be like, whoo, uh, you know, maybe there's another way. A healthy church. We have, we're full of hope that God is women, even when it seems like the church is losing or the church actually loses. I still to this day believe that when we restarted a church in Texas, that what we were doing was from God. And I believe that we needed to do it. And I told the group as we were sitting there, because what we had decided to do was not just restart this church, and not just restart this church in its location, which wasn't good, it, wasn't in a, it was in kind of a failing neighborhood, but we also said, we are going to do everything we can in this church so that there are no barriers for special needs people and special needs families. We're going to remove the barriers. We don't want to be a special needs church. We want to be a church, but we want to be a church that's removed all the barriers. But I told that group, I said, you have to be willing to fail. And if you're not willing to fail, then we shouldn't do it. Because what if God said, this idea is so foreign to most American Christians, it's so weird that they don't even know what to do with it, that there has to be 72 different attempts to do it before the church gets it right, and you are attempt 37. Are you willing to be attempt 37? Are you willing to be one of the 72 failures before it finally gets it right? And I told them, if we're not willing to do that, we shouldn't even try. Because it's going to be hard at times. And there is no promise that God is going to allow us to succeed in the ways that we think. To that church's credit, they said, let's go. Let's do it. If that's what it is, that's what it is. You see, when we follow God, it's not about winning. It's about doing God's will His way. When we're Christians, when we do God's will His way, we've already won. 
This text, as you saw at the end, also says, a healthy church is a praying church. My wife's much better at this than me. You go, what? Are you admitting, Pastor, you don't pray? No, I do pray, just not as much as my wife. And my wife reminds me about praying. But it says here, prayer is to be constant. We're in a constant state of prayer. We're always thinking. We're always praying. We always walk this life as though we are in the throne room of God. And it's not just praying for whatever. It's actually praying for the things that matter most. Are we praying, since I started this Healthy Church series, how much are we praying that we can become a healthier and healthier church? How much are we looking at these things and saying, God, how can we have more discipleship in our church? How can we be a more humble church? How can we be a church of people who look out for the interest of others in the church rather than just our own interests? How can we be living sacrifices? How can we do these things? Are we praying about them? If being a healthy church matters, we will pray about it. And we will pray constantly about it. Constant prayer. And then the last verse says, contribute to the needs of the saints. The saints are the other Christians in a church. And everyone in a healthy church is, is looking to meet the needs of everyone else in the church. And as we talked about before, Paul has just expressed this in other places as looking out for the interest of others. And we know that this is something that requires humility, and humility is not something that comes naturally to human beings. Humility, especially if we want true humility, true humility can only be expressed by people who are strong. It cannot be expressed by people who are weak. Because people who are weak, they might say, oh, I'm humble, I'm serving, but you're humble and serving because you're weak. But when we're strong, that's when we can show humility. When we have the ability to look out for our own interests and defend our own interests, and instead we look out for the interest of others, that's when we show humility. So where does humility come from? Well, it comes from Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness comes from discipleship. True discipleship. It always goes back to discipleship. So we're a fruitful church. We're a fruitful church when we are actually expressing the fruit of the Spirit right now. We're a fruitful church when we're full of hope. We're a fruitful church when we're praying. And we're a fruitful church when we're constantly looking to meet the needs of others. And then that last little bit, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality was a big deal in this culture. And it was this, this thing about if someone came to your house, you were almost obligated to take them in. And so this is not showing hospitality to people in the church. This is showing hospitality to visitors and guests and people out there. A healthy church is a welcoming church to all who come. There is an exception. I'm not going to talk about it, but the exception is false teachers. But other than that, all who come 
are welcome to the church. That means not just the ones here. Hospitality doesn't mean I hide my hospitality and hope no one finds it, and if they find it, then I'm going to be welcoming. Hospitality means being inviting. A survey was done about six years ago, and I never know the reliability of these surveys, but the number is so, so um, like surprising, so startling, that they did a survey of Americans And 82% in this survey, 82% said they were somewhat likely to go to church if someone would invite them. Let's say those numbers are huge and high. Let's say it's more like 40 or 50%. Think about it. Are we a welcoming church? Are we welcoming to the people who come in? I think we do that. We're pretty good at that. People have actually commented on that. But are we welcoming in terms of inviting people to come be part of our church, no matter what it is, whether it's the worship service, whether it's Bible study, Sunday school, different ministries? But you have to understand that if we really understand church and we really understand what it means to invite, we're not just inviting people into a building. We're not just inviting people to a class or a program. We are, in fact, inviting people into our lives. That's what a healthy church is. 